Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Nucleus Investment Insights. Today we ask the question, will US commercial property be the epicenter of the next property crash? As many of our listeners are aware, the work from home dynamic has drastically changed commercial office property fundamentals, particularly in the US and also here in Australia. There have been some spectacular falls in value in many US office markets that we delved into last week. In this episode, we're going to explore this and many of the other subsectors of the commercial property market here and around the world. Just a quick reminder, the pod, this podcast is general advice only and is not intended to be specific to your personal situation. If you do want to discuss your personal financial situation and how to improve that, you can book a call with me or one of the advice team at nucleuswealth.com forward slash contact. Today, as always, we have Nucleus Wealth's co-founder and chief investment officer, Damien Klassen. Damo, welcome. Hi, Sam. Hi, Damo. Uh, today, we also have Julian Campbell-Wood from Resolution Capital. Julian is a portfolio manager at, uh, like I mentioned, Resolution Capital, which is a global property securities fund listed on the ASX. Julian, welcome. Sam, Damo, good to be here. Excellent to have you. And uh, Julian, you're probably the best person to give us a bit of an intro, uh, just about who you are and your experience. So um, yeah, the floor is yours. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Uh, background for me, been at Resolution Capital uh, a little over 10 years now. Uh, so joined the business in 2013. Uh, before that, I spent time uh, in London, also on the real estate side uh, for eight years prior, uh, direct real estate funds management and also uh, European real estate on the sell side. Uh, so since joining ResCap, uh, been working as an analyst, then co-managed the, the AREIT portfolios along with our CIO, Andrew Parsons, uh, in the last five years, been one of the portfolio managers uh, on the global strategy. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Uh, my name's Sam Kerr. I'm the Senior Financial Advisor at Nucleus Wealth. Today is a pre-record, uh, but we are usually live every Thursday at 12.30 Australian Eastern Time. So normally you can jump onto the Nucleus Wealth YouTube channel and ask any questions that come to mind. Uh, but today you can always uh, have a bit of chat in the comments section with the other viewers after the show is done. Uh, you can follow us on your preferred podcast platform as our show is available on all the majors. So that's pretty much the housekeeping out of the way. So Damo, over to you to get the ball rolling. Yeah, thanks. So look, we're obviously run a few different things on, on property and there's a bunch of different flavors of it. And, and what we really wanted to do was, um, we've spoken a, a few times about the uh, US office, office uh, property market. And we, so we wanted to get a bit, a bit of a look at that. But also um, uh, Resolution Capital covers stuff right around the world. So we want to sort of dig into some of the more, um, oh, some of the, the different property sectors as well and just sort of touch base on on what we're seeing within that. Um, there's obviously been a, a rapid rise in interest rates and, and the effects of that on, on property prices is, um, and, and, you know, especially in terms of leveraged properties, is, um, is, is there's um, potential for things to go wrong. And so just wanted to sort of touch base with somebody who's dealing with this uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So with that sort of behind us, Julian, let's start with the, the big one, um, the US pro office uh, sector. So there's a lot of talk and, and suggestions that, um, you know, that, uh, that, that we've seen some big falls in, in, in prices in the office mm -hmm. sector in particular. Yeah. 
and whether that leads to uh, to problems that are that are sort of coming down the uh, the road as as the debt starts to to roll off in that sector and and needs to be refinanced, and, and whether we've seen some uh, some valuation changes just because of the rising interest rates. So I guess uh, what are you seeing in in the U.S. commercial property market? Are you invested there at all? And and what are you, what's the big big picture view? Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's there's a few things just to frame the discussion. I think, and uh, firstly, to be uh, what are the trends that are driving up office markets around the world, and then why are they particularly challenging uh, in, in certain parts of the U.S. And also, what's the relevance of that for the listed property market versus the the direct? So, in the last three years, uh, the COVID experience has has changed a couple of things in terms of office property. And utilisation has been the key one. So how much are we all actually in the office? Uh, and that's been different in different markets around the world. So in Asia, for example, utilisation is, is pretty much back to pre-COVID levels. So normalised completely. Um, Hong Kong, Japan, uh, a little bit less than China. And then when you look at the European markets, uh, Europe, such as Paris, etc., utilisation, again, is much higher. You move to the UK, a little bit lower. US and Australia is actually toward the lower end. So utilisation is lagging in Australia uh, and the US. And what and, that's and actually, sorry, before we get jump onto that, what what are you putting that down to? What's your what are your thoughts on the so some, of some of it's some of it's tenant mix, some of it's the commute, uh, and some of it's the experience actually of, of the cities in which these buildings are in. So uh, in in London, for example. Typically, a lot of people commute in from the commuter belts, uh, and that's meant that people really want to work from home because it's saving them time. Uh, in certain markets in the US, it's the commute, but it's also um, the social challenges that certain cities have faced. Seattle, San Francisco, there's some real social challenges there. Uh, and in, in Europe, for example, at Paris, um, yeah, downtown Paris, it's three to four percent vacancy because the experience of people going back into the office is a lot more positive. There tends to be shorter commutes um, and the experience of being in those cities is much better. In other markets, it's also the tenant composition. So governments uh, and tech workers have been particularly slow to get back to the office. So those markets where you have a lot of tech like San Francisco, that's been sort of ground zero for some of these uh, dynamics in office markets and it's now 30% vacant. Yeah, right. And so, and and is there, um, I guess, are you seeing, is, is this data changing? I'm assuming it's changing a bit over time, but is there any sort of trends where it's like, look, it's gradually building its way back or, or it actually looks like it's, it's flatlined in, in some of these kind of, um, cities? They're the ones where, I guess, where, where the, the vacancy rates are high. Yeah, it's definitely improving. Uh, and that's due to some of the work from home policies shifting. Here's an Australian example. Uh, the banks here were quite... Uh, open to having people work from home with no requirements to be in the office uh, at all. That's changing a lot, as you've seen in the press, uh, and that will improve the utilisation uh, for those those um, those businesses. Government as well. There's a push in the US, for example, to get government employees back because they're really not in the office at all, and uh, that's an issue in Australia as well. So some of those work from home policies are, are shifting, and that's improving utilisation. Uh, and the important thing about utilisation is when businesses have um, a view or an understanding of how they're actually going to function in terms of the number of people are in, the number of days, how much space they actually need, then they can be clearer on long-term decisions uh, and, and, lease, uh, and lease the amount of space they need. Because this, um, this changing way that everyone's working with work from home, ultimately it's mean that tenants aren't signing longer-term deals for the same amount of space. 
and you've seen vacancies spike up in certain markets, particularly Australia uh, and also the US. You look pre-COVID, Sydney vacancy was sort of mid-single digits. You know, now you're up in, in the teens. Uh, and that has an impact on office fundamentals, and the US is is much worse than that. Yeah, and I'm assuming that um, it's still the case that the the A grade um, uh, is is a lot more occupied than than say the B or C grade. Yeah, yeah, and that bifurcation uh, is actually being magnified by a couple of things. One, businesses are using the best space to attract their tenants or draw their tenants, um, not their tenants, their, their staff back into. The buildings so the demand for that high quality space is there people want the amenity you know they want um, better quality fit outs um, better quality uh, air quality etc uh, so the demand is clearly stronger for those high quality premium buildings uh, and that you can see that in the vacancy stats as well yes so if we're going to pick say sydney as an example mm. something close to home obviously that um yeah. so what, what are we talking about an a grade versus a b grade building in, in terms of vacancy rates if you're talking so so there's was it 15% you're saying the overall vacancy rate is? Yeah, it depends on how you draw the, the lines around the, the city. But yeah, you're looking at sort of low to mid-teens in terms of vacancy. Uh, and yep. the A grades, uh, I think the premium grade, you'd be in the single digits. And the B grades, you'd be, you'd be well, well above that. And that's true of, of most markets. Uh, and that's actually, in our mind, going to continue because not only have you got the tenant demand being tilted towards those you know, A grade premium buildings, but also the sustainability and energy requirements, meaning more and more capital uh, is required to get your building to be energy efficient. And that's where the tenant demand's going. So this B and C grade stuff uh, that doesn't have the energy efficiency is also losing tenant demand from that perspective. So you're just gonna see this widening gap uh, of the quality spectrum of office. Yeah. And we spoke a little bit last week uh with some distressed debt um, on this. And we just talked about the, the difficulties in terms of converting that office into residential and just the floor plates generally not not suitable. I'd guess so that the, the uh, you know, the C-grade stuff is probably easier though to convert to, to residential because it's probably going to have smaller floor plates or be a bit older. Is that right or not? Yeah, I think the grade doesn't necessarily speak to the, the convertibility of the building. It's more just yeah. the quality of whether it's the fittings, um, you know, the mechanical uh, of the building, etc. Um, but it's really, you're right, what are the floor plates? Uh, are they too large? Can you not get natural light? What are the ceiling heights, etc.? And that will define uh, whether it can be physically converted, but it's really the economics. Like, are these buildings at a value where you can actually spend the amount of capital to convert them uh, and then actually sell them uh, at appropriate residential prices, even if they can be converted? So I think your point around C-grade, you're right, those values are probably lower and you may get to a point where the buildings actually get scraped uh, and then you can look for an alternate use. Um, but the convertibility, yeah, it's really around the physical structure, but also it's it's the value basis. So you look at a value per square metre, are these low enough to spend the conversion costs and then deliver product uh, at the right price point? So in your portfolio, I did note you've got a, a reasonable amount of uh, residential, or certainly some of the bigger names you had, and there were sort of residential yep. um, names. So, um, and I guess we've seen some pretty rapid growth of, of rents in, in the US, but that looks like it's sort of tailed off and, and potentially going the other way. I'd um, be interested in sort of your thoughts on, on, I guess, why you're invested more in, in the residential side and, and, and where rents are headed. And, and in the US, let's start with it first, and then maybe we can talk about it elsewhere. 
Yeah, sure. So in the, in the US, just to give some context, uh, this is all rental residential, so not in condo development, etc. cetera. Uh, and unlike in Australia, where you might get, get yourself a nice, healthy 3% cash yield, yeah, we're investing single family homes where you're getting a five and a half to six percent uh, initial cash yield, and also yeah, the multifamily, so the rental apartments. So pretty healthy initial starting cash yields from these portfolios. And you're right, rent growth is moderating from unusual COVID uh, levels uh, through 2021, but it's still at pretty um, at pretty reasonable levels when we look at the coastal multifamily markets and importantly the single family residential market. And I'll split those two because the, the, the fundamentals are slightly different. But in uh, in the single family market, uh, in a lot of the Sunbelt markets where uh, these homes are located in the portfolios we invest in, uh, you're still seeing rent growth of five to eight percent, uh, which is pretty healthy. Uh, and and that reflects the supply and demand fundamentals. They just haven't built enough single family homes. You know, occupancies are high. You know, 97, 98 uh, percent. And incomes have been growing. So when you look at the rent to income levels for an invitation homes, which is our largest position, uh, it's it, it's barely changed. Uh, so it's still uh, you know five times in, income to rent. So it, it's still a pretty healthy demand picture. The supply has been constrained um, and that's why you're seeing that healthy rent growth, but it is moderating. Where you're seeing more rent moderation is in, in the Sunbelt um, apartments because you've just seen an explosion of supply. Yeah, the natural response when you see strong population growth, strong rent growth, developers are coming into these Sunbelt markets because you've got land available and the volume of supply uh, in those markets is significant. And that's why you're going to see the rent tail off. So we've we moved out of those Sunbelt apartments 12 to 18 months ago, and we've concentrated on the coasts where you've got more supply constraints uh, and rent growth on the coasts in, in you know, California, Seattle type markets, Boston, New York, DC, you're in the low single digit range. So yes, it's moderated meaningfully, uh, but it's still reasonable uh, and a reasonable supply demand out there. Mm. Right. Okay. And and then elsewhere in terms of rents. So, so are you involved in any residential stuff uh, in Europe or, or or Australia, or is it? So we we are also in Canada. So slightly different dynamics because it is regulated. So you can only increase rents on sitting tenants by inflation or the amount dictated by the local um, municipality. So it's a slightly different dynamic, and it's more of an affordable exposure there. But uh, in Canada, similar to Australia, you've got extraordinarily strong population growth uh, and limited supply. So rents uh, for new tenants are increasing 25% plus. So right. very, very strong dynamics in that Canadian uh, affordable rental market. Uh, we've got a small position in Germany, um, sub 1% in, in German residential. Uh, and the issue there is, is capital structure. <clears throat> it's not the fundamentals. The fundamentals are actually very strong. Rent's growing three to 4%. It's a regulated market. You've got very strong demand because of the influx of population uh, into Germany uh, and completely constrained supply because the portfolios are trading below replacement cost. It's uneconomic to deliver new supply. You actually can't deliver supply at the rents these portfolios are at. So the real estate fundamentals are good. Um, but you know, one of the issues that you can have in real estate is too much debt at the wrong point in the cycle. Uh, and that's an issue that you do have in some of these select European markets. That's probably a point we'll come back to because the vast majority of the REIT sector is in significantly better position. But in Europe, uh, there's a couple of vehicles there that uh, have too much leverage. And that's what's more recently kept us out of that, um, that German residential segment. Mm. 
Yeah, well, actually, so, I mean, we're good to run through some of those other sectors, but but I guess given the, the, the large, um, I mean, that, given that issue, so, you know, in, in 1991, I guess, in Australia, we went through this whole process and, and we were like, and, and then again in, in the financial crisis where a lot of it was about too much leverage sitting in, in property yeah. and then when the property prices fell and the whole thing tipped over. I guess where, which are the markets where you're most concerned? And, and I guess as a broad picture sense, I think people are saying um, generally that the, the leverage is not as bad as it was in, in a lot of those times. Yep. Um, but so, yeah, have you got any thoughts on, on where are the, the most dangerous ones? So you spoke about German residential as one. Are there other uh, pockets, I suppose? Yeah, Europe, I'd say, is, is the worst region, but it's specifically, um, most specifically Germany and Sweden. Sweden probably even more so than Germany because at least with the German residential, the real estate fundamentals are very strong. Um, but in Sweden, you've, you've got a lot of highly levered uh, vehicles with short-term and floating rate debt. So in Sweden, you're also seeing rights issues um, and there's probably more to come, to be frank. So that is, you know, the A-REITs of old. You've seen that play out in Europe. Uh, yeah. Other markets where we've got some concern but the fundamentals have held up has been markets like Singapore. Uh, where you've got LTVs up in the 40 plus range uh, and portfolios varied off, valued off very low cap rates. Sorry, just, just to define that, loan to value ratios. So. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, loan to value ratios um, up yeah, 40, 45%. Uh, so yeah. they're hitting some of the, the covenants they've got uh, in, in terms of being able to distribute. Uh, but you know, cap rates in the office market, they're still in the threes. So Singapore is a market we've, we've got some some concerns about, but fundamentally it's doing quite well from an economic standpoint. But we're not uh, we're not investing in that region. Um, elsewhere, uh, U.S. office rates would be one I'd put in the, the the bucket, which probably have too much leverage given the fundamentals, uh, and you are seeing some dividend cuts there. Not yet seeing rights issues to that degree, but you are seeing dividend cuts as well. Yeah, and so so broadly speaking. Um so we've seen sort of what 15 20 percent falls in prices there is that right in in, in which sort of price you mean in, uh, in the us us commercial uh in terms of the the underlying values yeah that's about right yeah and so um and and then the loan to value ratios there started um a little bit higher is it, am i right or not where or what so, yeah in, in in the us uh that we the loan to value, and these are our values because you, you don't, the companies there don't actually value their portfolios as, as you yep. do in Australia or Canada. Um, so when we look at our portfolio, the, the it's about 27%. So 26, 27%. So the US yep. is actually uh, in very good shape from a capital structure perspective, with the exception of the, the US office uh, REITs most particularly. But the US is, is in good shape, Australia as well. Sorry, I'm just trying to get a feel for how much leverage you think was in the US office REITs. So US office rates, you some of them be pushing up towards the 35, 40% plus. Yeah. Okay. And then so and that's that's including the fall though. So so it started at 25 and then you've had a 20% fall and so now you're at 35. Is that the No, so it, so the 25 I gave you is our portfolio. Yep. Um, but that's not US office. That's obviously a mix of different properties. Across the mix, so, yep. Um, but the US office rates, now some of them have, have much more leverage than that. Like if you looked at debt to EVs. Uh, you know, be north of 60. But in terms of loan to values, uh, again, this yeah. is debt to GAV, you'd be in the 40s and 50s. Um, right. But because because you don't value the portfolios in the US, you know, don't necessarily have those same LTV type covenants. Yeah, okay. Okay, so and let me just get this right. So for people who are 
I, th I think I've got the terminology right, but they're basically, if you look at the what they started as a value, it was forty percent, say, a loan to the, the the actual value they had in the books might have been 40 50 percent. Uh, the values have come down by twenty percent, and so now your loan to value is is more like fifty to sixty percent. Yeah, so loan to the actual underlying value that you can sell it at. Yeah, yeah and, and some some values in the U.S. office markets have come down well and well in excess of that. Mm. And uh, Julian, just uh, if you don't mind clarifying, just for the viewers as well, uh, GAV and EV. So GAV is just gross asset value. So the, the the reason we just use different terminology in the US because you don't the companies don't value their portfolios; they're all at historic depreciated costs. So we value them. So we just we look at the NOI streams, we apply cap rate, and just as the valuers do here. But when you look at the accounts of the US REIT. There's no value per se as you would if you looked at Center Group or Dexas or any of the A reads. Yeah, and good point for anyone who's investing. If you're ever looking price to books, yeah, is that it's not. It's obviously not comparable when you get big price movements. It's, it's yeah. Okay, um, and we're just going to go to a quick sales message. We'll be back in a moment. We'll be back with the investment insights very shortly. Euclid's Wealth is an active and passive investment manager. If you like what you're hearing and want some help with the investing, we can do it for you via our active portfolios. Our tactical and core portfolios use the insights shared in this podcast to construct and manage your investment. We blend tactical portfolios to offer our combinations of international shares, Australian shares, government bonds and cash. We vary the asset allocation with the goal of protecting your capital in times of market uncertainty. We also have active international and Australian share portfolios. These are chosen using our quality and value investment philosophy. You can find out more at NucleusWealth.com. Now back to the show. Let's change tack to some of the more niche sectors. Um, so mm -hmm. ones that sort of, uh, I guess, uh, in, in recent years, the self-storage market has, has had a, a, a decent run as uh, everyone buys a lot of stuff and then during pandemics and then they need to somewhere to stick it once they no longer want it. Um, and and data centers. So, but let's let's start with the the self storage. So, you know, there's this real um, push for for products over over services for for a number of years there, and and now we've sort of flipped around back to more to services. Um, had a bit of a rough month last month in in self storage. Uh, you know, I think you still have some self storage in your portfolio. Is that right? Or we do. Yes. Yep. See what, you, see what your thoughts are uh, around that market and whether yeah, we, I, you you hit on one of the big. One of the big question marks, but the other is also is, is work from home. Uh, so that was a big driver of, of storage demand as well at the outset. Um, and then also in the US. Sorry, is that just people moving the stuff out? I need, I need to put an office. You need, you need your second bedroom. bedroom. So, right. you, you know, you put the jet ski or, and whatever you've got in that second room into storage. So that was a, a driver yep. of demand. Ultimately, storage feeds on, on societal change. So you just need that sort of whether it's um, businesses opening, closing, you know, housing transactions, students, etc. So anything that disrupts that is what disrupts storage demand. Um, so the work from home dynamic was a positive uh, at the outset of COVID. You also had a lot of changes in terms of businesses, inventory. So a lot of things were moving around and that was a boost to storage demand. Uh, when we look at what's happened to, to storage, you alluded to uh, a rough month. Uh, it's because the US housing market, the transactions are slowed materially because 30 year mortgages are 7.5%. So people just aren't moving homes. So, just for context for your viewers, the US benefits from long term fixed rate mortgages. So, 
if you've got a fixed rate mortgage at three to four percent, you don't want to sell your house and move and then take the current fixed rate at seven and a half. So what's that what that means is the transaction volumes are down a lot. So there's not a lot of people moving. And the US is a market where you've got a lot of interstate migration as well. So that that demand has really come out of the self-storage names at this point in time, and that's what's impacted them. And also I'd say it's it's a moderation from from COVID periods. Like they had rents up 20, 30 plus percent. So you're also on the backside of that um, demand. So it's a combination of you know, rates normalising from abnormal COVID pricing uh, and to some of the demand given the housing velocity is slowed, uh, is not there at the moment. Yeah. And would you, in terms of um, economic sensitivity, um, I guess the, I feel like self-storage is, is, is an area that's grown fast enough over the last sort of 15, 20 years is mm. that I'm not quite sure whether... So, so if you hit a, it feels like if I, if we hit a downturn and, and people are worried about their jobs and all that sort of stuff, and you know where can I save some money? Yeah, you know, getting rid of my self storage sounds like a, a reasonable place, but I'm just not quite sure whether we've got sort of a history and enough history on that to sort of say whether that's that's the case or whether it's going to be more, I guess, stickier than than other sort of discretionary spend. Yeah, in in the US, you've got the history because the you know, the sector's been around for for a lot longer. Uh, mm. And it is typically relatively resilient. So you know, people tend not to want to deal with what they've got in, in storage, and it is often less discretionary than what people think. You, yeah. you might find people will cut back on that, the more expensive holiday or the eating out more, that sort of discretionary spend before dealing with your storage need because it is a typical needs-based product. Like you're not putting stuff in storage because you feel like it, it's because you need it for a period of time. And yes, if you really got to cut back Yes, there is an element of, of um, your ability to either downsize your unit or cut it all together. Um, so yeah, you will see some pressure on NOI, um, so net rents in a, in a recession, um, but not to the same magnitude of some of the more economically sensitive sectors. You know, historically, you know, things like office markets, um, historically, things like logistics markets or industrial markets. So mm. yeah, it, is, it is, does tend to be more resilient than some other asset classes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, um, data centers. So, you know, I guess my question here is, um, you know, there's obviously we've had an explosion in growth of data centers, um, and and the, this, this AI bubble obviously going on, or AI, sorry, certainly uh, rapid growth in, in terms of AI. But on the flip side, it's actually been quite hard to get some of these chips, and some of the chips are actually quite high end. Mm. And whether that means that, um, you know, you end up with the Googles and Microsofts and 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 Amazon sort of dominating that market, or or even just some of the the larger um, data centers sort of managing to get the getting a lot of the growth, and some of the smaller ones actually just being left with the scraps and not really benefiting. So mm. I guess I wanted to see what that was, <clears throat> as an outsider looking in. That's sort of my first take on it, but I'd be interested to see whether that's sort of similar to what you're um, what you're seeing or or different. Yeah. So when we look at the data center market. Yeah, we've we've historically split it between you know, the hyperscale data centers, which are you know owned or, or leased and owned by the you know, Amazon's, Azure's, Microsoft's, etc., where you've got one facility, large tenant typically controls the space, versus the other part of the data center market, which is your co-location, network dense, more retail oriented. So you know businesses like yourselves or us may use a data center like that. So. In the hyperscale market, uh, less supply constraints, more tenant concentration, you know, the control of those large hyperscalers uh, and, and 
more available supply or ability to put on new supply. That's what's categorized that hyperscale segment. And I'm assuming that they're also, um, you know, they're big enough to, to, to force some pricing pressures, I guess, in terms of, Correct. You know, yeah, if yeah. you want to try and overcharge me for it, that's fine, I'll just build it somewhere else. So what, what also changed is the, the development returns for those data centers have been phenomenal. So you're getting mid-teens plus development returns and they've been competed down. But, but as those, um, as the cap rates have, com have compressed, the ability to bring on new supply at lower rates has meant that you've had this decline in data center um, pricing really for a number of years, which has now changed um, because of the supply constraints which have popped up in markets like Northern Virginia, Singapore, Frankfurt, um, due to power availability. So we have even in a hyperscale market, which historically um, has had less supply constraints because they could be in, in a wider array of locations, that's flipped. And you've now seen you know, market rents increasing quite substantially in these markets, even in the hyperscale segment. And the other side, the retail co-location network dense, that's your Equinex type facilities. Um, you know, they deal more with the digitization of the economy. So all sorts of businesses that need data center space, need to interconnect, need to have on-ramps to the cloud, et cetera. And that business continues to be very strong. Uh, and that's that's going to continue. That digitization of the economy is the key driver there. Now, to your question on AI, you know, to us that is that is a sort of medium-term demand driver um, because the use of AI uh, and the data center needs are AI is still very early in terms of um, what the physical requirements are, and it's likely that those requirements will be more intensive than what the existing data center footprint is. So yeah. that's yeah. That's what I'd seen was that, you know, I can't remember what it was. You needed three times the, the air conditioning or whatever it was in terms of the liquid it, cooling it, and so yeah, they're going to generate so much heat. That's right. So yeah, for us, it's about positioning for that ongoing digitization of the economy. Um, and you know, Equinix is best positioned in that, but also the tightening in you know, the hyperscale pricing market, which is benefiting because landlords just now have more pricing power. So if you looked at the top 10 data center markets in, in uh, the US, Vacancy's gone from 10 to 3%, uh, and that's before any of this AI. So, mm. yeah, landlords have got pricing power even before we figure out what's going on with AI. But it, yeah. it's likely that, you know, the early stage of, um, you know, training these large language models, they don't need low latency. They don't need to be near population centers. So you might see much more data center market in, in other locations where you've got significant access to power uh, and cheap land. And that's a different sort of market than what we've been trying to position for in the data centers which are in the portfolio. Yeah. Now, the um, uh, one of those other sort of esoteric markets is the um, uh, the leasing of the the radio towers. So American, um, what do you call it? American, American tower, yeah, cell towers. towers. Yes. Yeah. Do you look at that at all? What's we do? Yes. Yep. We, uh, we, we've got a, a position in, in AMT uh, at the moment. Uh, so there's a couple of things with that business. Uh, very simple business. You basically own uh, telecommunications towers and, and le lease it out to the telcos. Uh, it's typically a very predictable revenue stream. So 75% of AMT's revenue is under master lease agreements. So you've got visibility on that over the term. Um, it's also in the US, uh, it's benefited from there's a fourth carrier who's been building out a, a national platform dish, which is also boosting the growth because as, a, as an owner of a tower, you get paid more if there's more equipment being put on your tower. Mm -hmm. Dish has had some, some challenges, which has slowed the rollout. 
of, of that, uh, and that's taking a bit of growth away from the towers. Um, but underlying that is a very predictable uh, revenue stream uh, and a very capex efficient revenue stream, which, which doesn't have a lot of economic sensitivity. Yeah. So the, and these guys don't own the um, largely don't own the equipment, do they? It's just a they're just that's in the space. And so, and am I right in saying as well that um, you know, as you, you your three G tower you need a lot fewer towers. The more the higher you get in terms of 4G and 5G, the more towers, the more densely you need to pack your towers. Um, and so uh, it goes from being, I'm, I'm Telstra or I'm an at and I've just built my own tower to stick a 3G on it. And now I'm looking at 5G or, or whatever. And I'm like, actually, I need 10 times as many towers. And so now I'm actually happier to share it. Like, whereas I'm like, I already built my tower. I'm not going to share it with anyone. Whereas, because you've got to build so many more now, it's like, yeah, I'll, I'll share with the other guys because I've just got to build so many. Well, in the US, it's quite a mature market, so you don't actually see a lot of new tower development. Uh, and the existing the existing uh, telcos have pretty wide coverage given their existing you know, 3G, 4G infrastructure. So yes, it's yep. about upgrading to, to 5G uh, is, is the big driver of CapEx, which is important to the, the telcos, um, sorry, the cell tower uh, REITs. Uh, and then it's been the rollout of DISH because, again, that's a new operator bringing on uh, additional equipment to the towers. That's more what drives um, the incremental revenue above the in-place contracts. In other yeah. markets, yes, new tower development uh, can be a bigger driver of, uh, of, of incremental returns and earnings. Hmm. Okay. But so that's not an area where you're looking at the moment, as you say, or you've got some exposure, but not, not particularly overweight? We we do have a small position. Uh, AMT is actually not in our benchmark, so any position is, is overweight for us. Ah, right. Okay. Um, yeah, and so I guess where I'm leading that from is, yeah, the, the, the Ameri it's a, I think it's is it still the largest REIT in, in the US? Yes, big company. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a big market. It's bigger yes, than anything. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so in, um, yeah, where of your time? So just quickly, I guess running through retail sector. So mm -hmm. you know, I think the macro data certainly is showing things are starting to very much weaken in terms of retail. But but um, I think in, in your latest report, you're talking and saying the the micro data is still not that bad. Yeah, I think that's a fair categorization. With different different markets and different types of retail, I think also splits. Yeah. Um, but if you look in the US, consumer. U.S. consumer is, is in a much better position uh, in a lot of ways than the Australian consumer. Fixed rate mortgages, uh, they deleveraged um, post the GFC. So they just haven't got the same exposure to rising rates that we do here in Australia. So the sensitivity to the increase uh, in finance costs is, is lower for the U.S. consumer. Um, so they've been pretty resilient uh, across uh, all forms of retail. It's been such a strong nominal sales environment. Our positioning in the US has been focused in the necessity-oriented segment, so predominantly grocery-anchored, because uh, that's where we saw the better underlying property fundamentals. And by that, I mean in the last 10 years plus since the GFC, very little new retail supply has been put on the ground. Uh, and that means that vacancy in that open-air shopping centre segment uh, is now the lowest it's been in 15 years. And all our research on the ground indicated that you know, the tenant demand is being tilted more towards the open air shopping centers. Uh, it's a lower cost format uh, than being in the malls. It is better to service uh, buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup because the format is actually designed for easy entry for a customer in the car. So the format to us just had 
uh, and still has you know, better fundamentals uh, and better, better way to service the customer they want to at the moment. But even the discretionary malls in the US have done extremely well. Uh, so still very strong. When we look at the, the leasing metrics, there's been no real change. It's been continued to be very solid demand. And bringing it back to you know, Australia, uh, Centre Group reported this morning, vicinity. Again, you've seen leasing spreads go from heavily negative to positive. Occupancy for Centre Groups back up to 99%. Um, yeah, and that uh, lease spread turning positive is on top of 6% plus uh, rent growth because they're CPI plus two leases. So you're right, the sales environment is, is going to moderate and is moderating because discretionary spending is under pressure. Um, but the underlying demand from tenants has still been pretty healthy across those retail formats. Yeah. And and on that same basis, on the Australian stuff, it seems that um, that given the sort of, the, you know, a problem in terms of strip shopping, I think in terms of a lot of vacancies and, 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 and things like that within that area, it seems weird that... Um, I guess the, the bigger guys can still get away with, you know, inflation plus plus sort of contracts in, in, a, in a high inflationary environment. Mm -hmm. At some stage, does that, um, you know, I, I guess are we reaching a point at some point where, uh, actually, you know, maybe I can put this another way. In a big picture sense, um, I sort of feel as if rents grow at inflation, um, you know, plus or minus a little bit in, in a longer term sense. Uh, but the, the, the retailers in these uh, shopping malls have managed to get through rent plus inflation for, for some time now. Does that start to top, tap out at some point or, or do you think just the format um, means that they can afford to charge just a bigger and bigger premium over, over say, the strip, strip mall? If you go back to the pre-COVID period for, for Centre Group and the old Westfield Retail Trust, for a long point of time, their, their NOI growth or the net rent growth across the portfolio was in the twos. So while yep. they had these CPI plus two leases, what you found was when the lease was renewed, you were getting a step down. So right. yeah, the, the, the tenant wasn't paying you know, that full CPI plus two. That's yeah, through COVID, obviously some rents were reset given the disruption, but now coming out of it, you've got occupancy costs, which are actually lower than they were. So occupancy costs in a raw sense is just rent to sales for a tenant, yep. uh, lower than they were pre-COVID. Uh, and then they've had this very strong sales. Well, and, and partly that's the high inflation, isn't it? Like you've just had Correct. whatever, over two years, you've had 12, 13% added to your sales just from inflation. So, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. So inflation's definitely helped. But even beyond that, you know, volume, you know, retail volumes have been up as well. Obviously, they're, they're coming off now. Uh, and in the US, similarly, you've had a phenomenally strong nominal sales environment. So you're right, to what extent can this continue? Ultimately, it's, it's driven by the profitability of the retailers in that space. Uh, and the stores are the most profitable way for retailers to fulfill a, a sale. You know, no cost of delivery, no customer acquisition costs. So that's still a positive for uh, those retail formats. But you're right, you can't compound rents at 8% without sales doing the same thing. But at the moment, healthy demand, Occupancy is good. Um, yes, rents will, will normalise over time to a more moderate level. That's that's fair. Yeah, but no, but no alarm bells certainly ringing in that sector. Um, uh, industrial, we saw so one of the um, so I guess there's two parts to this. I guess that I'm thinking, I guess largely the warehousing part. Mm -hmm. I suppose from from this side is um, a number of different factors. One is uh, we've seen you know the, the transport costs 
fall by, which which rose by five times and yeah. fallen back down by by eighty percent. So we're sort of roughly back where we were with a with a round trip in the middle. Um, so that's that's happened. Um, we've had a big insolvency in terms of trucking in the in the US in, in yellow, um, and then the concept that um, companies have got. Uh, they want to keep more in, in inventories, so sort of just-in-case inventories rather than just-in-time inventories. Mm. So um, a number of sort of big macro factors, and I guess what I'm interested in seeing where you see the industrial, like which are the, where's the push and pull coming from in that sector? And and um, and I, I guess probably the, as the biggest picture for me is um, while companies say they're going to keep more inventories, I, I worry that if, their competitors stop keeping inventories and go back to just in time because it's more profitable. That eventually mm. people give up and go, well, you know, maybe another pandemic will come and we'll be short again, but but maybe we'll go for another fifty years before that happens, and in which case we'll make a profit for the next fifty years. So I don't know. Over to you. So yeah, a few things in there. I guess I'll frame the, the way that we've been thinking about industrial logistics in the last few years. Um, we're actually underweight logistics in industrial at the moment, uh, and this is is after. Yeah, long-term overweight positioning for us, very constructive on the space. And really it comes down to a normalization in uh, operations for most logistics markets, a normalization in rents and vacancy from abnormally strong levels the last two years, still to a very solid environment, but just where valuations were, um, you know, we, we've reduced exposure to the logistics market. But when we look at the, the fundamentals, um, in, in the US, you've still got historically low vacancy, albeit it's rising. So the tenant demand uh, has still been healthy enough and you've got extraordinary mark to markets like you know, 70, 80, 90%. And that uh, is simply that when a tenant leaves, the new tenant will pay the market rent, which is 70 to 80% higher in areas like Southern California, New Jersey, New York. So those coastal markets, you've got extraordinary mark to markets because market rents increased so materially because vacancy in Southern California was one and a half percent. You know, vacancy in Australia is 50, 60 basis points. So, you know, that, that dynamic has led to very strong rental growth, but cap rates compressed to a point to reflect that, which is why, uh, you know, we took some money off the table. But the demand is, is still very strong, albeit moderating from exceptional levels. Uh, and as economy slow, we expect that demand to continue to moderate. Yeah, and and do you think? Uh, I mean, it, I think of industrial, and particularly the warehouse part, as being you know the simplest part. I just need to stick a shed up and a on, on a on a cement on a bit of cement rather than sort of you know having to build facility, lots of facilities like you might need in in commercial and, and those yeah. sorts of things. So, um, you know, the expandability would seem to be faster. But but I'm guessing that people weren't expanding as rapidly because of we don't know how much of this is is temporary and how much of it's um, going to last forever is that yeah you, you hit on one of the, the big issues in, in parts of the logistic market because you're right when there's land available and there's demand and capital developers are there and and you're seeing that so when you look at a supply chart in, in the us for example a lot of the ramp in supply has been in industrial logistics markets away from the coasts where you've got land availability yeah, the markets where you're seeing the strongest fundamentals and where you want to invest has been in Southern California because there's just no land available, which is why vacancy was so low and rent spiked. Um, yeah. you know, parts of Sydney, you know, southwestern Sydney, similarly, because you've got alternative use like residential and other things taking out land 
you know, parts around central London, um, around uh, Heathrow Airport. Again, the land availability is actually coming down. And that, given the need for logistics to be closer and closer to the population centres, has been a big driver of what's happened to market rents. Yeah. But you're right, there's been a massive supply response in places in the middle of the US, um, you know, inland Empire East uh, in California, in, uh, California um, where you've got land availability, you know, Texas, these sort of markets. So that's where the risk is, uh, is greater. Mm. Melbourne, for example. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the whole alternative use part because it's a bit like the um, all the building companies for a while they made bucket loads of money from selling their old quarries because yeah, well, that's, Brickworks are still doing it with with Goodman. Yeah, so this, yeah, this just for listeners, you know, the, the, you build a quarry on the edge of the city and then the city expanded past you and they, then you sold off your quarry yep. for ridiculous amounts to to, yep. to build houses. All, all the market gardeners in Western Sydney selling off, you know, to to land developers. Yeah, so is that. And so, so is that similar then in the logistics market or, or at least it's being affected, I guess, is what you're saying? Is It, it is, yeah. So yeah. one of the positions we've got, the portfolio Torino, um, I think it's 50 or 60% of their markets either had flat or declining land supply. So that's a big, yeah. that's a big driver, um, the, the availability in these close population centres. Yeah, close. yeah. And, and and then I guess, you know, depending upon, you know, if you are going through population growth, you know, I'm just thinking of stuff around, around Melbourne where there's you know, lots of places where, you know, the, the inner city stuff is all turning into high-rise apartments and stuff. So yeah, yeah. Let's see where that's. Even if you have a weak industrial market, a strong residential will will help bail it out. Hmm. Well, yes. even now, uh, you know, the alternative to that, evident in Goodman's results, is data centres. So they're looking at, and this is not just Goodman, but Seagrow and some of the others. You know, these uh, large pieces of land that have power. They're actually finding that the demand for data centers is driving pricing at three times what they can generate out of logistics. So that's right. another, another example of you know alternate use for well-located large plots of land with power in the right locations. Yeah, 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 yeah. Excellent. Okay, um, yeah, that's that's sort of reaching towards the end of my questions. Do you, do you have any anything anything big? I guess in the sector, you think I've missed? That's in terms of. Yeah, I think the the big, um, yeah, some of the big themes that have been uh, driving returns. We touched on a lot of them, so industrial logistics, e-commerce. I think one that is maybe slightly different for your viewers is is rental seniors housing. So it's not something which is common in Australia, but in, in the US, rather than your DMF type model for your retirement. Oh, you might have to get some acronyms there, DMF. Yeah, sorry. So deferred management fee. If anyone who's put you know, had to put a parent or a grandparent into care, you'll know there's a deferred management fee and often a bond. Um, yeah. Whereas in other markets, it can be a true rental model. So you just pay rent for your care and um, for your your apartment or your home. So in the US, it's a it's a rental model. It's private pay. Uh, and when you look in the US, you're just hitting that point where the over 80s baby boom population hits into this um, this need of care. In the US, that population is going to grow at four and a half times uh, compound out to 2030. So very strong demand profile, which is baked in because it's demographic. Uh, and at the same time, you've had supply collapse because of construction costs, finance availability. So just as you've got this demand uh, ramping up, the supply of, of new seniors homes is really declining. So one of the largest positions we've got in the portfolio, Well Tower, is exposed to this seniors housing dynamic because we think it's a it's a multi-year trend providing needs-based 
uh, you know, space and accommodation and care um, to a demographic which is growing uh, and it looks like it's got a, a pretty healthy multi-year path ahead of it. So that's another segment, healthcare real estate, which you can't really get access to in Australia, um, mm. which you can in, in other markets. Yes. So when you say healthcare real estate, is that does that also have some sort of hospital type factor in it, or is that I guess when I hear the name healthcare, yeah. that's what sort of first comes to mind. Is that yeah? So seniors housing is in in the US. It's put in the healthcare sector, um, yeah. and it's it's lumped with medical office buildings, for example, where you might have uh, outpatient care, um, you know, clinics, etc. So that's also in there. Then you've also got um, some post acute care uh, and SNFs. Senior nursing facilities, yeah. um, but the majority of, of well power is seniors housing. But yeah, there's a broader healthcare real estate bucket. There are hospitals there as well, um, but there's there's only within our healthcare exposure. I think there's a very small percentage of hospitals. But yes, it is in that that bucket. Yeah, and my my guess would be uh, just pitfalling here is that the healthcare, the the outpatient stuff, and the and the you know, that it's not that dissimilar to office. You're not really, you don't really need much extra. Is that, am I right in terms of, like, I mean, a, hospital's a, a hospital is a, is a purpose-built facility. Mm. I guess what I'm wondering is your average doctor's office doesn't seem to be a purpose-built facility for me. That's, you know, so you're effectively trading on, on um, uh, you know, not CBD, um, office, commercial office space. Yeah, so there's a few different dynamics there because they typically... Uh, yeah, they want to be on campus, so either on campus, on the hospital campus, or closely adjacent. So there is yeah, some supply constraints there. Yeah, the fit-outs are more intensive, and typically the doctors don't want to move a lot, so you'll find there's a there's a stickier tenant. And the other the other big trend is um, trying to shift more procedures out of hospitals into um, these sort of facilities because of the cost. So there's, yep. a, there's a trend to try and get more procedures into these outpatient and, and other medical facilities. So yeah. it does operate with different dynamics to the office market. You know, the cap rates are 65 to 7% in the US versus 8 to 12 for traditional office. So yep. the, the medical office type um, tends to be a more stable profile, less economically sensitive. Uh, and again, it, it's needs-based with some, some decent underlying trends to the demand. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's an interesting one. Excellent. Um, look, thanks a lot. Really appreciate your time. Sam, have you got anything? I'm just going <clears> to <throat> jump to the sales message and then we'll come back and, uh, yeah, give Julian an opportunity just to um, talk about resolution capital. And, yeah, so I'll just cut that bit up, but I'm just going to sales me sales message now. We'll be back again shortly. If you like what you're hearing but want a low-cost passive option, Nucleus Wealth is the first to offer passive direct indexing in Australia. The first generation of passive investing was index funds. The next gen was ETFs. Now direct indexing is here with significantly more customization and control. The benefit of direct indexing is you can add or subtract investment themes, and we have almost 100 different options to choose from. For example, you could buy an international share direct index portfolio that excludes fossil fuels and arms manufacturers and has a tilt towards cybersecurity and cloud computing. Alternatively, you could buy a portfolio with no screens and an extra exposure to nuclear power and defense contractors. You can find out more at nucleuswealth.com. Now back to the show. 
So Gillian, thanks for coming on the show. We'd like to give you just uh, an opportunity just to talk a little bit more about Resolution Capital and, and let the viewers know where where you can uh, find find you guys. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Uh, so I appreciate the, the opportunity today to, to discuss with your clients a few of the major trends we're seeing. If you've got more interest in, in what ResCap's doing, you know, rescap.com. Uh, and in terms of the way that uh, you know, clients can, can invest in the strategies, we've got the, the active ETF, uh, RCAP, uh, so easily accessible uh, by your ordinary broker, or we still have the traditional uh, unlisted funds, both in hedged and unhedged. Uh, and across the broader platform, uh, we've we've also got uh, domestic A REITs uh, and and real assets. So if more information, yeah, please reach out. Fantastic! Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a really interesting discussion about the many different sectors in the commercial property world. Uh, so yeah, thanks thanks again, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks very much. Now we have our question of the week. So this is for viewers to have some discussion in the comment section over the coming days. And the question for this week is, how concerned should we be about commercial property in the US? So feel free to post your thoughts and engage with us and some of our other viewers over the coming days. And now Damo, over to you for investment implications. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, so look, interesting conversation. Uh, I think just in a big picture macro sense, uh, in terms of when you've seen rising interest rates, tends not to be the time for, for property um, sectors to, to perform well. Um, and, and the other factor, that, and, and part of the reason for getting on, is, you know, we're obviously talking a lot about the debt, is that you, you can get caught in this part where uh, you're seeing values fall because they're, they're priced very similar to, to um, or, or they're priced a lot of interest rates. So, so you're seeing values fall at the same time. If you if you run into this with too much debt, uh, and and suddenly the interest rates jump, that you can you can start running into some real problems that we've seen, you know, during the financial crisis and and back in '91, there was sort of commercial property, particularly in Australia. Um, and so, keeping an eye on where the leverage is is very important. Uh, as as he spoke about. Um, yeah, there's a few areas you've got to be careful about, particularly that commercial property in the US. But but beyond that, there are some interesting sort of parts where you can sort of see some fundamentals and and you know with a view that prop, that interest rates are close to peaking, um, you know there's there's potentially some some place you can start looking for some safety. Uh, but the big thing you know I just want to keep coming back to on on all these property ones is 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 uh, making sure those fundamentals stack up because you can get into the phases where um, and we saw it, you know, during the financial crisis, where what were, were looked upon as very safe and very steady businesses, if you see some rapid turns, say in the retail sector and what people are willing to spend, or, or in the industrial sector, then you can, um, you know, th those um, uh, and and you're getting with a lot of leverage, you know, they can those can come unstuck quite quickly. On the flip side, is if, if um, you know property sector will be less volatile than other sectors, and if so, if you don't have that leverage problem that that you've got too much debt. Then um, you, know, you can find some safety if you're looking for downturns within this. So, so certainly one of the areas we're, we're looking at, um, and and which are the which are the parts of that um, that, uh, that that have those underlying fundamentals uh, within that. And so that yeah, within our portfolio, there's 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 a number of these um, more more the esoteric subsectors uh, like the self storage or the um, uh, or some of the telephone towers that that we've sort of been more heavily into. And I think yeah, we probably will have a bit as he's just discussion we will have a bit more of a look at some of these healthcare and and see whether we're uh, we like the fundamentals versus the pricing we can get within those as well 
Nice one, Damo. And I just want to add that as the viewers likely heard, uh, we have around 100 different screens and tilts. And I just want to throw out a couple of ideas of how uh, viewers or clients can play these within the, the Nucleus Wealth portfolios. Uh, on the screens side, so you can exclude, uh, we have a sector, no uh, gigs sector real estate. So you can exclude all the real estate there. And then with the tilts, you can add an extra exposure to global real estate, uh, depending on if you're bullish or bearish on the sector. Uh, so that pretty much wraps us up for today. So Damo, again, thanks for everything. Thanks for putting the show on. And uh, we look forward to the next discussion next week. Thanks, Sam. We really hope you enjoyed and got value out of today's podcast. At Nucleus Wealth, we thrive on putting out low-cost, innovative products, and we want to continue to do this and create great content for our listeners and clients. Subscribing to our channel will help us do that, so we'd love it if you hit the subscribe button now. Also, if you know of anyone that might get some value out of today's episode, we'd really appreciate it if you do share it with them. We also put out a lot of other content in addition to this podcast. We have regular articles that are featured in all major Australian publications, and we also have the Nucleus Wealth and Power podcast. We just put out an episode on Nucleus Wealth and Power recently about the changes to super and also how to take advantage of super splitting opportunities. To get all this in your inbox, uh, you can subscribe to our weekly Nucleus News at NucleusWealth.com. We do welcome your feedback on this podcast, especially in regards to suggestions for future topics. If you do have any ideas, drop it in the comments section below or send us an email at contact at NucleusWealth.com. So from myself, Damien, Julian, and the rest of the team at Nucleus Wealth, thanks for watching and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.